you, you know, this is the uh, the first episode uh, of, of this this beautiful little marathon we've done that uh, I'm certain. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on the drop orders of the others. But this is the first one that was both recorded after, it won't be released after, I've turned 30. Uh, much like this little motion picture we're watching today. Yeah. Uh, it is weird how uh, how how much this 30-year-old movie has its finger on the pulse of today. Good yes. job, Joe Dante. Yeah. Well done. Yes, indeed. So, uh, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table. We discuss films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. This week's film is Joe Dante's Gremlins 2 colon the new batch uh and so here we are uh talking about another batch oh gremlins and oh my goodness this batch has gone wrong mm, this is a bad batch this is a bad batch or, or a good batch depending or, or on how you look the at the best it. batch true. maybe uh, uh, i think it is definitely the better batch which we'll talk about in a bit i'm sure oh we'll see about that uh, my name is dustin my name is arthur what's my name again guys is it dalton is that right that sounds right. dylan beetlejuice diego beetlejuice Hi, I'm Beetlejuice. Don't. Oh, you said it three times! No! I am, I am still Dalton, and yes, these nice gentlemen let me program our horror marathon for my birthday. They Would sweet. be great if we had Michael Keaton come in. And, oh, if only. Uh, I know, right? I think that every time we sit down to record, boy, it'd be great if we could get Michael Keaton on this, huh? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Oh, I just thought, am I starting to pick things by the end of the show? <gasps> Not next week. Not next week. Oh, After we, next week. We After next week. I have a week. week. Okay, cool. Good. Well, the, the first entry was chosen for him, but we'll get into that. Okay, yeah. we'll get into that. Okay, that's what I was, I was like, oh, I'm not no. ready. Okay, good, because I wasn't ready. I'll buy you some time. All right, good deal. So, without any further ado, then, let's move on to our little thought exercise aforementioned and explained. Uh, we're going to create a class, and we're going to use Grimmels 2 as part of that class. How are you going to expand that syllabus, Arthur? Yeah, so I think I would talk about the intertextuality and metatextuality of, of this film uh, and the... Uh, references it's making and what it's pulling from. Like I said, I think Dante wears those those influences on his sleeve. Uh, and, and so this would probably be part of it, just maybe a film theory class, film studies class, to talk about intertextuality, um, which are just those internal references to other films that kind of inform the, the story that's being presented. Uh, so I think I'd start with Duck Amuck. We've already talked about the Looney Tunes, mm. and I think Duck Amuck is the prime example of this, where, where Donald, or Daffy, I keep wanting to call him Donald, uh, Daffy gets to... Uh, be tormented by an animator. Uh, and it's very meta, very, very zany. Uh, Daffy gets to kind of call his own shots at times in, in that cartoon. And, and it's kind of, I think, the the best example uh, to kind of pair with uh, the Gremlins. Uh, and so it's that's where I would start, I all, think. All-timer Looney Tunes short. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a classic. Uh, from there, Christopher Lee shows up in Gremlins 2. And I think it's, you know... Uh, through uh, no lack of his work at Hammer Horror. And so yeah. I think you got to do some Hammer Horror, some of that kind of campy horror from, from Britain. Uh, maybe you know, Horror Dracula, House Dracula. Is it House or Horror? Horror of Dracula. Okay. Horror Dracula. And finally, for the production, well, not finally, but for the production design of this, this kind of gray, futuristic, cohesive corporate design, the futuristic te technology, as much as I dislike the film, I think you got to watch uh, Brazil. I think okay. that would be here uh, because so much of that design feels like it's influencing the design of this film, the, the kind of future dystopian world that uh, Gilliam set up in, in Brazil feels like the kind of base point for for uh, uh, Clamp Industries or whatever it's called. Finally, I want to talk about Matinee, which I actually just watched before recording this. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton Stewart? What would you do to expand the syllabus? What do I say, Dustin? Dustin, I say to survive war, you have to become war. And if uh, anything is uh, war other than shooting at people, it's making art. 
uh, damn it. At least that's the hill that I'm dying on today. Uh, so we are going to be looking at uh, Hollywood gorillas and making art for the man. Uh, this is this is stuff that we've kind of dealt with a lot uh, in the run of this show, kind of talking. I mean, that is yeah. really our bread and butter. It yeah. is that that intersection of uh, making money, uh, <laughs> making art for money, and still trying to do something creative. Now, if you need proof that uh, commercial pop cinema doesn't change anything, you need look no further than this film and Back to the Future 2 and uh, our current presidential administration uh, to know that popcorn entertainment will not save the world. Uh, it will not change anybody's mind. However, there is still value in it, I think. <laughs> this, is, this is not to say that there is not value in making uh, money for large corporations and, and trying to be subversive within those confines. It is to say we have to recognize the limitations of the art. We have to recognize the shortcomings of uh, the uh, media ecosystem of North America and, and Western Europe and how that is limiting in a lot of ways. But I, I think there there's a lot here in Gremlins 2 for us to work with. Again, as, as you've talked about, Arthur, Dante's, uh, you know, kind of interest both with like, you know, classic schlock cinema, uh, but also his distaste for the industry that I think is really on full display in this film, I, I think is really where we're going to work from. Uh, this is going to be a potentially wide ranging class. I thought of, frankly, too many things that kind of fit in this category. So I want to start off by recommending a book for once. Uh, we never do that, but I think there's a text for this class that'll be really useful, and it is uh, Writing Movies uh, for Fun and for Profit by Robert Ben Garrett and Thomas Lennon. You probably recognize those names. Those are the gentlemen uh, who uh, are behind Reno 911 and a lot of other very funny stuff. But you might not know that uh, Garrett and Lennon have made over uh, have written films that have collectively grossed over a billion dollars at the box office. Uh, on the title cover of the book, Fun is writ crossed out, I should note. Uh, these are guys that know how to churn out a screenplay for a paycheck so they can make something weird like Reno 911. Uh, and I think that that is a very interesting way to look at the industry is to look at it through the lens of people who have had success in the industry and are willing to kind of tongue-in-cheek talk about uh, being comedians uh, and still trying to uh, figure out how to make a buck and make a make a living in this industry. I, I think that'll be interesting. I haven't read the book myself, but I've I've heard both of them talk about it a couple of times. So I think it will be a, an interesting look. So this is probably going to be much more of a a, a film uh, studies class more uh, so than what I usually do on this show. I, I don't tend to do a film studies ex uh, specific class, and I think this is very much going to be focused on that. Uh, I think outside of that film, we'll look at. Uh, a lot of clips. We won't be doing like a full, a lot of full movies, but I think it'll definitely be a couple of weeks. We'll talk about uh, trauma, obviously, uh, and Dante, James Gunn. Look at some clips from these filmmakers who came up in trauma and then ended up having mainstream success. Uh, but I think looking at trauma and this, I think you also need to kind of look at other. Uh, kind of gonzo guerrilla filmmaking stuff. So we'll look at uh, some of the work of Sasha Bear Cohen, uh, what works about his career, what doesn't. Obviously, his career has a lot more duds uh, than successes. And I, uh, I'm i going to go ahead and uh, Arthur has informed me and a couple people have that everybody likes Borat too. Not me. Uh, not a lot of people I know that I watched it with. I think it's a bad, 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 not very good movie. And I don't like it when rich people tell regular people to vote. I think it's in poor taste, uh, which is how that movie ends. I, don't care for it. But I think Sasha Baron Cohen's career is really interesting, especially his commitment to prank filmmaking. I think we'll also look at the Jackass franchise a little bit and kind of talk. We'll also look at the French film uh, Man Bites Dog, which I haven't actually seen, but is a mockumentary about a film crew 
uh, who a documentary film crew who's following a serial killer and ends up becoming accomplices. So I think kind of talking about uh, that that fine line between making a movie, making a prank, uh, making a movie, and not telling people you're making a movie, uh, and uh, again these sort of lines of metatextuality that Gremlins Two crosses over. Uh, it, it is this sort of work that I think uh, th- this work that's directly talking about uh, the film, not always the film industry, but just making money uh, with artistic endeavors, uh, does allow us to kind of get into that that sort of th- those those films that are more interested in like doing weird meta jokes and and exploring things. I also think we'll probably look at a couple of uh, episodes and maybe just some scenes from Mad Men. Some there's some really weird moments in that series if you haven't watched it. It is. Uh, a comedy as often as it is a drama. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from the reality of the kind of people that end up in advertising. I mean, obviously everybody knows John Hamm looking cool with his haircut. There are a lot of side characters on Mad Men that are kind of, uh, I can't think of his name, but the, the guy that's uh, the male lead on that Superstore show has a really great arc on Mad Men as a copywriter that uh, who's uh, comes from a family that survived the Holocaust and like, that character's psychology is only ever really alluded to, but he's going through some stuff. You got this guy, Stan, who uh, comes on as like clearly a probably like a, a guy that uh, was in the Navy right after the war uh, and then becomes a hippie. Like, there's so many great character arcs on Mad Men. They're just about the kind of weirdos who want to draw and write and do stuff like that for a living. And not everybody gets to make movies, some people have to make commercials. Uh, and I, I think there's some value there. We'll look at Hail Caesar. Uh, which is the same kind of story we've been talking about from the perspective of the studio, the studio that has to wrangle all the artists and how those relationships become extremely toxic, especially when the people with the money are controlling every avenue of the artists' lives. Uh, I think Hail Caesar uh, is a film that does a really good job of reckoning with the classical Hollywood system and, and the high degree of control uh, that it gets exerted on, over people. Uh, I think we could even, in that that section of talking about Hell Caesar, maybe talk about, you guys are doing some cute eye work right now, and it's really fun. Uh, I, I, it, this is only tangentially related, but uh, so more, you guys are killing me. Uh, every time a video game comes out, uh, it seems like there's a article after article about crunch in that industry and the abusive working conditions that exist there. And I think Hail Caesar will be a fun, we could, uh, a fun film that allows us to talk about other creative industries and these similarities that we see. Uh, journalism, game dev, uh, so many things where people are working for, quote unquote, the love of the game or whatever it is, right? Where people are being pressured to work more than they really want to because they're, well, there's people lined up around the block to do your job who would uh, who do your job for free currently and are dying to make money doing it. Um, and, and finally, I think we'll look at uh, Speed Racer from the Wachowskis, which deals with a lot of this stuff directly using racing as a metaphor. We'll look at Blade and uh, the indie to Disney pipeline because Roger Ebert's review of Blade very interestingly talks about the role of superhero films in creative filmmaking. And uh, yeah, he's, he was very interested in that film. Ebert kind of didn't really... Uh, I, I think quite reckon with uh, what he was saying at the time and wasn't quite aware how prophetic his words would be. But he talks a lot in that review about how, how this, uh, you know, the, the ready-made uh, blockbuster success of comic book films, which obviously kind of starts in 89 with Batman, he writes when talking about Blade about the big swings that creatives can take when there there is a, a guaranteed opening weekend. Uh, so I think we can talk about that a little bit. And I think we'll close on something that I've been watching lately, the uh, Showtime series of The Good Lord Bird, uh, which is a mini-series based on a book, uh, a narrative fiction book, a historical fiction book about John Brown. 
and creates this character named Onion, uh, who uh, John Brown frees from uh, bondage uh, only for Onion's father to be murdered uh, and for Onion to have literally nobody else in the world but John Brown looking out for him. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ethan Hawke is a developer of this series. He's also got some writing credits on it and is a producer on it. And uh, the most recent episode, there is a big old John Brown monologue about how do I reach people and change their minds. And it very much seems like Ethan Hawke thinking, all right, how do we write something that is addressing now uh, that is so far removed from now that people can't get too mad at us? So I, I think some clips from that show will be useful as far as, uh, again, I started talking about this class by saying, you know, broad entertainment really has no uh, ability to affect change in the world, which is something that Dustin knows some people smarter than me have written about and can probably reference them. I unfortunately can't. But I, I think uh, Ethan Hawke's attempts to try and do something of a political nature with the Showtime series uh, are useful as kind of a, a closing kind of thesis statement, right, on uh, this, this intersection between profit, art, and, and uh, theme, or rather um, uh, intention to impart theme, I guess. So that's the class... Uh, making stuff is weird. Uh, art's weird, and uh, it's it's fun to talk about how the sausage gets made sometimes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to do something surprising. Uh huh. I am actually going to teach Gremlins two in a horror class. Well, that is not that surprising. I, I mean, because it's not really that scary, and it's 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 weird, and it's you yeah. know, I mean, you know, in, in terms of horror film, it's not really part of the. Canon. Yeah, look, it only gets picked for this marathon because we had five weeks. Yeah. Right, yeah, it is kind of outside of the scope of capital H horror. And so the, the way in which I'm going to do that is I'm going to sign a book, first of all, Kevin Hefferman's uh, Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold, The Horror Industry from, what, 1953 to 1968 is the dates of this little historical analysis text, uh, which is talking about the gimmicks that are used in horror films mm. specifically in order to bring people in. As you may or may not know, Gremlins, uh, the original initiation of the franchise in 1984, was on the same model of cartoons at that time, a la He-Man, Thundercats, G.I. Joe, etc., really? GoBots, Transformers, which was, we have a merchandising idea. Let's stick this thing on suction cups on people's windows. Yeah. That was the idea first. This is the thing. Let's make a movie around the thing. I mean, that's what happened with uh, the Ninja Turtles, right? right like yeah. They had this massive licensing deal, and then they were like, uh-oh. Uh, the only way people would know about these toys is if they read these adult comic books, these yeah. indie comics that nobody's ever heard of. So let's make a cartoon, yeah. and let's do it that way. And so the cartoon and the narrative shapes sort of just followed after that. Because so Gremlins was part of that. Gremlins was part of that, yeah. I had no idea. It's the same kind of business model. It's like, oh yeah, we got to sell these dolls. There you go. Uh, this is a great doll idea. Let's make a movie about the doll. And that's what ends up happening. And of course, Joe Dante is absolutely having fun with that idea by the time we get to Gremlins 2, and that's where it gets it's really, really self-aware. And so, of course, we'll focus more on the 50s and 60s in the class. And uh, the movies that we'll look at, first and foremost, is The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, we're going to get the 35mm 3D version. In my version of this class, I have an infinite budget, and I can do whatever I want. And Universal will send me that print, and I will screen it in class with Excellent. red and blue 3D glasses. Uh, because the 3D is part of what sold that particular film. Then we're going to move on. Because Arthur mentioned uh, the film Matinee, which I was not aware of, and John Goodman's uh, William Castle kind of character, mm. I think we will watch The Tingler. Obviously, we will not have Tinglers installed in our seats, but we can at least figure out where it would come out. And, and how, it would be fun. And, would well, be yeah, fun. and you get to talk about The Tingler as an influence on Dante and, and that, you know, the the movie breaking bit. Right. right. Like, that is an experience 
I mean, he's he said he's made no bones about that being a ripoff. Like, yeah, For I like sure. the Tingler. I wanted to do a bit like that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it'd be great if we could rig the seats and make it tingle, but you know, that's not going to be. I sure. don't think feasible to do as a thing. Probably not. But and then I'm going to look at uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho mm, yeah. uh, and talk quite a lot about the rule about you if you cannot yep. get in there before the opening credits, you don't get to go into the movie yep. and uh, to not spoil the ending. And you know, this is sort of big. Uh, promotional blitz that was uh, surrounding Psycho, the casting of Janet Lee, and then killing her off right away. Spoilers. Mm. And uh, it's a movie from 1960. I don't feel too bad about spoiling it at this point. Uh, and just the ways in which those kinds of works put themselves together into a marketing scheme uh, in which they are able to make a buck off of a movie. And uh, finally, I would also use the 1999's The Blair Witch Project and mm. its web design promotions. Totally. Is it real? Very is it good. fake? Is it fake? Yep. Is it wrong? Yeah. It's Discovery Channel, like 30-minute doc. Yeah. So uh, that, and then we would uh, obviously then uh, at some point talk about Gremlins 2 and just the most meta-aware version of all of this stuff. I'm wondering, does uh, your, your class have any room for, and I know this is outside, you mentioned... This is a module sure. within the class. Uh, the, the film Exorcist uh, had such a huge like reaction when it first came out, right? And like so much of that film's marketing ended up being just the news covering people like fainting during it. Like, right, that was the whole thing. And yeah. a couple of other films have tried to... That's like a post-priori kind of move there, uh -huh. you know? So after the fact, uh, that's something that they just sort of exactly. took advantage of yeah. for sales rather right. than sort of uh, but gimmicking it to the, at, the, at the outset. Exactly. But it does kind of weirdly influence like a lot of horror movies after. I, yeah, I think it would play into the conversation for sure. Well, it's only a movie. It's only a movie for yeah. Last House on the Left. Exactly. You know, the, that kind of thing. You were going to say something, Arthur? Well, I, I was just outside of horror. I'd say Avatar in 3D, kind of the mm -hmm. reemergence of 3D. Sure, but I mean, I think even to an extent, Paranormal Activity, totally. which kind of had this, you know, grassroots campaign of hey, win a screening for your city, which was a huge thing. Well, and, and a film that I thought about mentioning, just as as far as like the the history of guerrilla filmmaking and trying to do it as quick and cheap as possible, uh, and try to guarantee your re return on your investment when uh, you know you're making an indie film and you have no idea how successful it's going to be. Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm just thinking more about the gimmick itself sure. yeah. as the the module within a broader horror cinema class. And uh, Gremlins 2 would definitely play very well into that idea. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I think now, though, it is time to get down to New York. It's You know what those Start vagabond, spreading the news. Those vagabond shoes, they wear business socks under them. That's what they do. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And uh, here we are doing that business, which is analysis. And there's so I mean, we, we talk about the meta thing all uh, more afternoon, whatever time of day this happens to be. Um, so, I mean. That is the eye chart. There's not even that, a big E on the eye. That, that is the, the eye entire chart. eye yeah. chart. It's just simply the postmodern uh, technique of filmmaking is, is, a, is a self pastiche reference. Sure. And uh, this is one of the earliest and maybe best examples of that just gone to the wall. I mean, you could say Who Framed Roger Rabbit is doing something similar sure. to this. Uh, you could find other examples uh, around this time period. A little bit, a few years later, Last Action Hero. Well, I think this period yeah. where these the, the 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 boomer children are entering adulthood, at least like middle adulthood, I guess, and like entering the peak of their careers. Uh, 
throughout you know the entire world, but specifically in the film industry, you've got a generation that grew up on television, the first generation grew up on television that is like super trope savvy, very aware of you know by the end of the first act your your average audience goer can have a pretty rough idea where the story's going just by virtue of having seen everything from the moment yeah. they were born. Uh, and, and I think that that has a lot to do. I'm glad you mentioned Ro- Frame Roger Rabbit. Uh, obviously, we already mentioned um, Zemeckis as you know, kind of part of the Amblin school uh, of filmmakers. But yeah, I, I think it is the, the 80s and 90s where this sort of you know postmodern stuff that has been at work in so much of film, uh, you know, the, from like the 40s through the 70s. But it's a part of like art film, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a part of experimental film. It, it's a part of stuff happening outside of the industry. It isn't really a part of the mainstream. I, I, can you guys think of any examples? Like, I'm glad you mentioned Roger Rabbit because that feels like a pretty early one, but mm-hmm. I, I struggle to think of anything you know, earlier than that, that's really doing, that's a, a big studio movie that's doing this much with, like, pointing out how movies work. Well, I, I, well, I think because the thing of the time was, you know, outside of your blockbuster franchise, it was realism. I mean, you look yeah. at the new Hollywood, they were grounded in real, realism, you know? Absolutely. So, I mean, the 60s and 70s were focused and doubling down on that, and so it, you know, took a Roger Rabbit-type movie to kind of break out of that or those block even then it probably feels more in the blockbuster yeah. frame well, i we, mean you could say there's postmodernism all over the 70s insofar as a movie like star wars sure. is cribbing akira kurosawa and the western it's more of an intertextual yeah, kind inter- of. intertextual instead of like a full-out metatextual yeah. kind of approach well, and yeah. obviously you know this film references bugsy bugsby berkeley musicals and like gold diggers of 39 is a movie about the industry right so that's you know a film from early in the history of film is is dealing with like working in hollywood but it's not really, I guess there's some stuff in there that's kind of like a little behind the scenes, you know, noises off type stuff about how like making a musical actually works. There's a little bit of that, but it's not quite, it's paving the way, but it's not really doing the same thing. And it doesn't quite approach that level of Frederick Jameson's idea of pastiche, mm-hmm. where the movie is just made up of cut and paste pieces from sure. other things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got a movie like uh, Gold Diggers of 1939 or Singing in the Rain, which are meta films about filmmaking and the filmmaking mm-hmm. process. Yeah. So there is this sort of sort of precursor to what would eventually become postmodernism. I think Sullivan's Travels is also right. the same grouping. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then moving on into what we got in the 70s and the ways in which these movies are in a way self-aware. I mean, mm. even like something like The Holy Mountain, which is not mainstream, yeah. but it's being made at that time yeah. where Blazing they're breaking saddles. the fourth wall for Blazing yeah. Saddles, Woody Allen go. films are doing similar kinds of things. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, so the 70s are full of this kind of like, there is a joke about how the movie's a movie, but it's not, it's, you know, the final five, right. ten minutes of the picture. That's what we see in the 90s, is sort of that apotheosis of postmodernism, which is, I think, what I, the point I was wanting to make at yeah. this point is that postmodernism reaches apotheosis 30 years ago. It's weird, yeah. It's, it's we, that long ago. I just started yeah. thinking about, as you were talking about this, oh, shit, four years later, you've got Pulp Fiction at Cannes, which is a movie that is just made of cribbing from French movies that were cribbing from American movies. Right. Uh, and it deliberately trying to be like clever about pointing out that it knows that it's doing that. Right. Yeah. It is th- the, the synthesis of like gremlins two in the late eighties, early nineties. It's like, okay, haha, everybody knows all the rules and all the, the stuff. Now let's like fold it in on itself. One more layer, I guess it's like, how, how, how many times can you fold a tiny piece of paper in on itself? Which raises a question about the status of art mm-hmm. in the 21st century. 
Because mm. one could make an argument when one sort of really hits this pretty hard is that art itself is a dead scene. Well, look, I or didn't, commercial uh, art. I didn't think I was going to get. I'm, I'm getting stretched up. I didn't think I was going to get to fight Sasha Baron Cohen on this episode. But uh, yeah, go. I watched Borat two this weekend, and I don't understand. People think that this is a good movie. I don't. I truly am baffled by it because to me, it is a ninety minute apologia. From a rich dude who feels really bad about, well, let me rephrase that. It is a movie by a Jewish man who feels bad about his role in normalizing anti-Semitism in the mid-aughts. And not really knowing 15 years later what that would result in. And again, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen cannot be held accountable, I don't think, for uh, frat boys not getting the point of Borat. He literally pranked some frat boys in that movie into being very, very racist on camera. And yet Borat 2, which I am subtitling Borat Gets Woke, really is just several scenes of Sasha Baron Cohen pranking people who either definitely know they're being pranked and don't care because this is America, and if you talk to somebody long enough, they might let you make a dollar off of them. He's constantly talking to people in businesses who are just like showing them genital, pictures of genitals and stuff. It's like, man, that's not really a joke. That's kind of like a low-key assault. I know these people are probably bad that you're talking to but come on yeah like there's some funny bits in there like the the character that plays his daughter talking to a uh, republican women's convention about masturbation that's funny that's pretty good but like it also just ends up being about how he learned he goes to a synagogue in a very not okay costume at one point and learns that anti-semitism is bad from some very sweet old jewish women and the entire time it's just like sasha i don't know what you're up to with this movie man I, are you trying to feel bad for the for, first Borat? Like, it, it really seems so unfocused in its satire. And, again, so much like an apology for the first movie and, like, an, an apology for uh, the, the the lack of power that art has. As you said, is it a dead scene? Maybe. Maybe, if this is what he thought the sequel to Borat needed to be, which, again, I, I don't think it needed to be more in-your-face, more contra. I mean, again, they got Rudy Giuliani to... Commit a, hey, look, people have uh, gone to jail on uh, Chris Hansen's show for doing what Rudy Giuliani does in this movie. So I don't know. Is there power in that? Probably not, because people are living in different realities at this point. Like, you can't satirize something that people have fully devoted themselves to in a way where they stopped, they've stopped asking questions. And, and I think when people have started to segment off the realities that way in this post-satire, post-truth world where the Internet allows you to have whatever reality you want to have, I think you're right, Dustin. I don't. I don't know that there's power in this sort of thing. And I think to your point about this kind of popular, you know, commercial filmmaking, I, I think it's interesting how, in you know, 2020, we've we've kind of come full circle back as far as commercial filmmaking goes. And I'm, I'm thinking studio. You know, I, I think commercial. I think studio. Mm-hmm. I don't think you know a24 to an extent. You know, obviously they've got a brand. Uh, and you have all these indie filmmakers who are doing their thing, trying to get their their art made, and to you know that point, hard time arguing the merits. But I, I think obviously, there's no bigger flag bearer right now than the MCU, and, and this kind of sick cycle of superhero films that we're in, and everything kind of feels much like it did in the 30s and 40s, where everything's just coming off an assembly line. You know, there's the sameness to all these Marvel films, and you brought up Ebert and the, the quote about. Yeah. 
creatives being able to take a big swing. And, and really, Disney hasn't allowed that to happen. I mean, the couple of times, maybe when James Gunn shows up, or you know, a couple of other times yeah. here and Coogler, there, Cooler Gunn, kind but of, even YTT, those are kind of the three even names. The, even those names where they've brought in to kind of have that cred. You know, we've got Ryan Coogler, yeah, but we're gonna handcuff him and not let him film his action scene because, or you know, not gonna let him do this because we're gonna have our second unit yeah. come in because we have a very specific style. This movie of, has to come out on this date yeah. in this year, and we have a very sameness to the fight we have a very sameness to the action and, and we can't kind of have that you know we have these kind of personal undertones elsewhere but there are certain sequences that do get reined back in and handcuffed by the system well i mentioned the indie to disney pipeline but i mean you get so much like sitcom to disney pipeline right because whether it's you know the russo brothers or chris pratt you have these people work that are used to working in in sitcoms and yeah. that is very close to their production model yeah and, and i think the other thing is you know you look back at the studios and you, you get into the 40s and 50s and communism and the blacklist and you had all of these scripts that had a very, very subtle subtext about what was going on. Sometimes, you know, in the genre stuff, Day of the Earth stood still, things of that nature. It was a little more Earth. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is very on the nose, I think, in some regards. Uh, but I feel like right now in, there's no subtlety in commercial filmmaking. You have these filmmakers who come in and you, you know you make this joke about Borat Borat gets woke right that's it. It, it you either have just a a a empty film not saying anything or just or you a have message fil film yeah and, and there's no subtlety to it it's either yeah, don't and, worry. and that turns people off in mm -hmm. a way because they're like oh it's just preaching to me about this you know liberal propaganda or agenda like they're not able to kind of absorb the messaging in the same they they would into a more subtle approach I, I think that you would have seen in the the 40s or 50s and that trumbo would have been able to work into a film rather than whoever's writing i don't know what what's happening right now that's captain marvel 2 yeah right it, it begs the question like who, who's this for right because yeah. when you have these massive corporations who uh you don't have to try very hard to see, to find the math of like where they've globally done ill uh, whether directly or through somebody that they are, you know, have financial partnerships with, right? And you don't have to get into like Disney and the Department yeah. of Defense. You can just look at Amazon. And they've got to appease China because yeah. China is a big chunk of the market. So they can't do anything that would slight that audience. They can't do anything that's going to turn off the American military yep. corporation. Yep. Uh, and so uh, commercial filmmaking, and by and large, feels, I think, very void of that messaging or that, that kind of artistic flourish that I think you're. Absolutely. About. And I want to su subject you to a tentative thesis. Okay. So um, the 30s, as you talked about, was a sort of just, uh, you know, really kind of milled uh, kind of yes. production. Our last Gilded Age. Uh, and, and what happens in the 30s, of course, is the technological innovation at the end of 1928, 1929, mm -hmm. of the in in invention of sound film. Yeah. And so part of the process there is that in the 20s, we have really adventurous filmmaking on the commercial level that is borrowing from various avant-garde and various sort of experimental aesthetic movements. Uh, and uh, now, working. Dustin, you're you're mentioning this. I'm wondering, is there anything at the end of the 20s that might have impacted uh, people's ability to be adventurous? And well, I mean, obviously, there, there's yeah, there's definitely a, an economic crash with the uh, stock market as well. Uh, you know, but the, that that's going on throughout the 30s, and of course, the Great yeah. Depression is 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 a long period of all of that sort of economic failure. But by the 1940s. Um, Borrowings from German Expressionism hmm. and French Realism begin to influence filmmaking in interesting and, again, sort of newly innovative aesthetic kind of ways. People and are seeing each other's movies for probably the first time in any real way. 
But then we get ourselves in the 1950s, and we certainly have gimmicks and technologies and cinemascope and 3D and Technicolor becomes more and more widely available. And we do see sort of a dearth of the film industry up and through the 1960s, up until the 70s with the new Hollywood, where we begin to begin to borrow from the French New Wave. And again, another aesthetic movement. And then we have some sort of a resurgence of Hollywood, and then uh, a, you know, and that this I think that resurgence really lasts through till the nineties, and then at the nineties is sort of where it dies again because we begin to again see uh, technological uh, issues regarding distribution, and so video, a, a, a home viewing, VHS, uh, eventually DVD. Further on into the birth of both the the simultaneous development of computer. Uh, special effects and streaming right these two things that are kind of slowly and begin pre-streaming it's cable broadcast and you know main uh, premium television but it is these sort of these both these distribution models and these filmmaking techniques that are kind of evolving alongside each other absolutely and bloating the cost of production but also making it easier to get your film in in front of people all all of those things together but we've resulted in basically a decade lasting about 25 years when what usually would take about a decade for you know the industry to sort of adapt itself to this new mode new technologies new tools or whatever and then to look into other aesthetic modes in the experimental world in the avant-garde world and begin to find ways to commercialize those and i am in a sense i am sort of celebrating the commercialization of those avant-gardes of those experimental techniques because they do make films more interesting and i think part of the reason why uh some cinema goers are so bored with film right now is because in the broadest commercial tentpole filmmaking there is this great sameness now we do see the avant-gardes being drawn into what we might call art house releases gaspar Noé puts out a movie mm-hmm. uh What's his bucket from Drive? And I can't think of his name. All of a sudden, Nicholas Winning Refn. Nicholas Winning Refn will make a movie. Uh, the, the 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 films of uh, Wes Anderson, etc. Uh, well, even smaller. Um, Ariane Aster. Oh, even small. Well, you know, Arthur mentioned we've talked about A twenty four already, but I, I started thinking about Annapurna, uh, who is not yeah. quite as successful as A twenty four, and is yeah. really kept alive by the Ellison family's money. <laughs> yeah. Just their their ability to like keep giving filmmakers cash despite not turning a budget. Uh, turning a profit but, but these little miranda, semi-artistic boutiques yeah, miranda are, july neon. has this new film neon. from annapurna this week uh kajillionaire which is really good but i bring it up just to be like yeah exactly what you're talking about is like we're talking about just films that didn't get made 20 years ago mm-hmm. as hollywood and the studio system is going through this growing pain of just a change in the sort of projects that are getting greenlit. But they are sort of limited to specific kinds of They're audiences. Niche. They're very, very niche I mean, yeah. again, you see something like Midsummer make a lot of money. or But or, a lot of money is like $30 million. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so you see some of that going on, but you don't see the big tent pole that's going to take advantage of this, and suddenly we're going to get the biggest star in the world, Humphrey Bogart, mm-hmm. in this German Expressionist-styled film. That's what I'm... You know, sort of bemoaning totally. at this point. And the question I have, though, is where are we in terms of cinematic art uh, in the world uh, as as far as finding a new aesthetic that is making some politically active, socially engaged sort of commentary? Because that is what founds, you know, what you might find with realism or with surrealism or with German expressionism or any number of these other sort of aesthetic movements that we might look at, the uh, the French New Wave, the various new waves across uh, Europe and, uh, and across the East. 
we don't really have. I mean, the closest the, thing I can think of. Which I, I thought of one. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say remodernism, which is going back into modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great sort of full length uh, anthology film called In Passing that came out about ten years ago mm-hmm. now. But remodernism is sort of trying to do modernism again, do modernism better, uh, going backward before postmodernism, mm-hmm. gotcha. and uh, finding a way That's to do a, a a digital version of what modernism might look like. Well, Arthur brings uh, Adam McKay. Uh, and the big short up a lot. And I think that is sort of this new mode. The closest thing you have is these studio films that are kind of these edutainment pictures that include like basically very short TED talks or very short PowerPoint presentations in the middle of the movie to go, Hey, that thing you kept hearing about on the news for a couple of years that you still don't understand why it ruined your life. Here's it in a nutshell. Uh, and I think that is maybe the closest thing that we, I, I got that, that mention of remodernism is really, do you, can you think of any specific examples of, things that kind of fit that criteria that are out recent or now i haven't i haven't seen remodernism commercialized yet gotcha okay. i haven't no, but, no, I'm, not an, I'm not an authority or not an expert on sure. it but that's the only aesthetic movement that i know of that's gotcha. sort of a possible fertile ground that we mm-hmm. have not delved into i think it's just such an interesting time because i think you know since 9-11 we went back and kind of got into a comfort zone as far as big commercial filmmaking and have conditioned audiences for the last 20 years so that anytime a commercial film starts to get subversive, it, it scares the audience away. I, I think of subversive uh, in unaccepted ways, I might I, say. Yeah. yeah, I think um, uh, the stupid uh, Mr. Rogers movie. Um, oh, Won't you, you be, be my, my neighbor? neighbor? Yeah. Um, which is obviously a very commercial targeted film. Uh, to kind of play on the the popularity of Mr. Rogers, which is pretty much a four quadrant audience, I think. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, but I think you know there's a sequence in that film, and advertising is part of this too because it was probably a lot more dramatic than people anticipated. But there's a sequence in that film that gets very surreal, and I you know I've kind of talked to some people or, or heard people say like they didn't understand that and it put them off and put them in a weird place watching that movie. And so you know you talk about you know obviously the stuff Hitchcock would have done you, you know incorporate the German expressionism into his films to add to his suspense or whatever and kind of uh, absorbing those art house techniques and avant-garde techniques to make these commercial films I think now if you try to do it visually you're fine but if you try to do that narratively or textually you have a concern of alienating your audience yeah and so you know yeah we have a24 who's making these films but their target audience is a24 fans and so, you know, if somebody, you know, your your typical four quadrant fan goes to see, I don't know, uh, I can't, uh, Spring Breakers, right? They're going to walk out and they're going to be mad. I think Dalton had that experience, yeah. right, when you went and saw it's, that film. Teens very confused by that film. And by the way, it was uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Is the um, yeah the Muriel yeah, Heller yeah. Tom Hanks movie yep. that was a be- uh, bunch of be my neighbors the documentary. Oh yeah, right, about yeah, yeah. Fred Rogers. Yeah. But you're you're absolutely right. Like uh, Muriel Heller is kind of a uh, is a filmmaker that is not afraid to get weird with it, and that yeah. is not a that, that was a movie that is kind of going towards a different demo than the, the typical. Well, and there's an exceptional moment like that in Paul Schrader's first Reformed as well. Sure, yes, you know, but again, that's a film for <laughs> an audience of that. That particular uh, that kind of movie. But yeah. the the approved aesthetic, it seems right now, is postmodernism, which was at a time very anarchic. Yeah, sure. And uh, very upsetting. And uh, again, with something of a political edge to it. But now it is, be- because it is, the, for the last 25 years, the only approved aesthetic, we have yeah. a postmodern sort of endgame or Captain Marvel movie or I whatever. I think it speaks to a lot of the, like, 
uh, the kind of like sincerity core movement, right? Like you're talking about uh, the, the the current demos coming up, right? The the the, the blessed what 18, 15 to twenty nine or whatever, whatever the demo that uh, people who make things for money uh, talk about, right? It's all uh, Zoomers and millennials who, as yeah, grew up on nothing but a diet of media that was very postmodern. I mean, if you look at whether it's Animaniacs or SpongeBob, you're talking about. 15, 20 years of children's programming that is priming children to like have a, a, a much more kind of aware, be more aware watchers than maybe mm-hmm. previous generations might have been. But I, I guess my, my whole point is I'm just bored with postmodernism. I'm ready to do something else. Yeah, and I, I We're think... We're after that now. What next? The movement towards sincerity, I think, is, is something... has something to do with that, right? Yeah. I don't know how necessarily tied those are, but they feel definitely have a piece with each other. And I think, you know, you mentioned this last the 20 years being a you know kind of was it, it you uh, mentioned time speeding up in that or slowing, slowing down slowing down it's like a decade gotcha. that's lasting 25 years thank yeah. you okay i just wanted to clarify what you said uh, this year especially you know arthur mentioned this move towards the big temple releases this is a year that has lasted for 20 years mm-hmm. and i think uh people whose you know livelihood is made on whether or not theaters are open uh from concession stand workers all the way up to to moguls there's a lot of people sweating bullets right now about how how to make money off of movies because nobody knows what it's going to be like in two years. I, I think people are very concerned about the viability of movie houses, uh, reasonably so, because so much of every industry is run on debt. If you have to take a uh, a hit to your profit margins for an entire calendar year, there's just a lot of businesses that are not equipped to handle that. And I, I think... The, the democratization of film is very good in that ability. You know, this is, I, I only mention it because this is something the new Hollywood guys were so hot about, right? Especially Coppola. Right. Uh, th- this whole generation of filmmakers from the 70s and 80s were so excited for this current generation of filmmaking. And I don't think anybody expected all of the changes that were going to happen along with the democratization of production. And it has really kind of changed things. For sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, oof, I don't know. What's, yeah. what's... We better move on. Yeah. We spent a long time talking about aesthetics and postmodernism, and clearly Gremlins 2 is a thoroughly postmodern text. Uh, and so that's where this all comes from and where it's going, even though we've talked about everything but Gremlins 2. Well, let's, let's, let's here's a great segue. Gremlins, 2. Gremlins yeah. 2 has a uh, a bit where the cable network that they're the Gremlins are uh, may- mayheming they play an end of the world clip. This made it into the film because Joe Dante learned CNN had a pre-made end of the world reel, not to be played until everybody confirmed the end of the world was happening. That's a real thing, y'all. And I think that maybe is. It feels like a very Cold War fallout. Yeah. 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 Well, but again, right in 1990, so that CCN seems... is CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Clamp yeah. is Ted Turner. Is Donald Trump? He's is both. weirdly yes. Mitt Romney? In a weird, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a sure, real sure. Romney vibe I kept getting off that cat. Yeah, yeah. real proto Romney type yeah. vibes. Yeah, I get that. I mean, not intentionally there, like sure. the Trump, um, uh, Ted Turner thing, who were real existing figures yeah. in I mean, public the life. Colorizing Casablanca being a direct, a direct dunk on uh, on a uh, Ted Turner who wanted to do that very same thing yeah. for Turner Classic Movies back in the '90s. But yeah, it is weird the way that this film wants to use like television uh, and, and cable television specifically to kind of get into this postmodern stuff we were talking about. What do you what do you want to talk about next though? Cuz I I think you're right. We have pretty much uh, blood the well on that one. Yeah, so um we got Evil Ted Turner. Um I guess we could talk about just gender and uh, that kind of stuff because I I think we got to talk about Phoebe Cates is um sort of apparently got flashed by an Abraham Lincoln flasher yeah, at some point that's... which is what happens in the first Gremlins movie and she finally kicks one of them in the uh, Gremlin balls. 
I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's weird. But also the way in which she is used as a victim of sexual assault, and then we have the sexually predacious um, Marlena Mola. Marla. Marla. Yeah. Well, the the, the horny boss. The horny boss. I was say. Yeah. Yeah. But you're absolutely right that there is some real late '80s, early '90s, like women in the workplace shit in this movie. That yeah is real. Ugh does not land very well has not aged particularly well and again i think the film is too busy with its bits to like do anything really for phoebe cates who again i think is a standout in both the first movie and this movie has like some of the best bits of actual just like an actor being required to carry a comedic moment i think she crushes it in both movies and uh, yeah it doesn't really have much for her to do other than the the elevator gag that's it yeah that's that's unfortunate and to yeah to to have the, the the very kind of gross joke, uh, the, the 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 Abraham Lincoln's birthday story that just kind of peters out again. It's a funny callback to the first movie, but it is weird. Mm-hmm. It, it is the mo- the one moment I think the film goes way too dark. Yeah, and doesn't really it land, does not even come close to landing a joke. Yeah, it's a strange choice. I I, I choose in my head canon that it's a flasher and not an actual molestation, but yeah, that's just the choice I'm making just to keep it from going to yeah yeah grody in my yeah, head. But it's yeah. pretty upsetting. It's possible, you know, and that the the movie does open up that possibility. And then we have uh, what, Greta the the hot gremlin. I don't I don't know what her <laughs> name. She has a name. I can't. Oh, remember d- it is. yeah, Greta is what I want. I think she to say. she has a credit. Please name, let it be Greta. The puppet. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know. And again, it's Joe very Dog. Miss Piggy. Yeah, very yeah. Miss Piggy type stuff. Very uh, the the Nega Jessica Rabbit and mm-hmm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That character. Yeah, a very classic Looney Tunes bit, right? The uh, the the hot lady who turns out to be uh, a hot silhouette with a, a frightening visage. Yeah, is a kind of a classic Looney Tunes yep. bit. But there's a reason those bits happened in the 40s and 50s and they probably should have stayed there yeah so it is kind of unfortunate it is a very much a, a 90s bit uh not a, not a film to go to for your gender politics or your racial politics for that matter although i do think that the film knows that gentrification is bad mm-hmm. uh and gentrifying a neighborhood and trying to uh keep that neighborhood's original like flavor that's a bad way to put it uh, try to aesthetic. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Try to keep the aesthetic of a neighborhood while you know displacing everybody that lives there is. Yeah, that's just that's just classic real estate development. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think the film has a pretty clear eye on that sort of stuff and the kind of anti. Hey, let's schedule an impromptu uh, celebration of uh, <laughs> the gratitude festival for what we've done for them. Yeah, it's just funny. It is funny, and again, I, I think the, the, so. It's weird though, right? The, there's the moments where the film like totally falls on its face, trying to say something about. Uh, just the world <laughs> and, mm. and times where it really does kind of stick the landing and have something interesting to say it is it, it is interesting in, uh, in that regard the way in which again i think the first movie has it too that dante like really is kind of clear-eyed on some stuff and there's other stuff that i just think is a little out of his depth to or a little out of the production's depth to 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 really engage with in a meaningful way i agree i agree uh, do we have any other big thematic stuff that we want to address I mean, I just want to talk about the postmodernism for the most part, and then the gender politics. Uh, we could like talk. Futterman's xenophobic, our... and you know, I mean, he is making fun of white people, so it's yeah. kind of better. But you know, xenophobia is kind of nationalism just in disguise. So. Sure, totally. That's I feel gross. like some of the art commerce stuff we hit on in the syllabus, right. the mode of production type stuff we've already hit on. So yeah, yeah, and there's not really anything right. done with Clamp other right. than just like aesthetically being very 
Trumpian as a figure yeah. uh, in the same way that the yeah. 80s and 90s were corporations are bad or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's not a whole lot there's not much there there no yeah, it's I, not that kind of movie uh, yeah no it's absolutely not alright well there you go dear listener we did have a pretty in-depth discussion though of Gremlins 2 yeah. and I'm glad that we've done that uh, let's go ahead and render a verdict shelf or trash Gremlins 2 go Arthur Oh, man, I've got to say trash. Uh, I, I do like some bits in this movie quite a bit, and I, I you know, I, I just don't see myself going back to it. I, I don't know that there's a lot of merit to it. I, I do think it's a fun gateway, though, if I ever, when I do have kids and, and want to start introducing them to horror, I think it might be a good spot. But other than that, I don't know that I'd ever come back to this, especially in a world where small soldiers exist, and I think that being the Ur-Text that Dante has put out, or even Matinee, I, I think, which also is a, I, maybe his peak film. Um, I, I think this is kind of uh, uh, trash. All right, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Well, Arthur came pretty close to swaying me there. Uh, I am going to go ahead and shelf it. Uh, I like it. I, it's just it's weird. There's not a whole lot like it. Um, I, there's not very many uh, movies that you could make the argument are about viral pets. Uh, I think, weirdly, somehow Gremlins like uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch, just kind of called some things. And I, I think for that alone, I am kind of enamored with this movie. Just it's... Uh, knowing what the '90s were going to be like that early in the decade is is some pretty pretty cool like pop culture soothsayer shit that this movie pulls off. And you know, I'm I'm always in love with that kind of thing when it, when a movie has its its finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist and is just like a little bit further out than everybody else. Uh, you know, Dark City's got that going for it, right? The Matrix hits and blows everybody's minds, but there's like two or three movies that already did it. Uh, I I am just kind of enamored with movies that have culture figured out and yet you know. Don't really have any traction. This movie makes $41 million of a $50 million budget. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Nobody gave a shit about Gremlins 2, um, which is good. You know, it means we didn't get a Gremlins 3, which I think is for the best. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of a weird oddity. Uh, and I don't really care for the first Gremlins, so I, I'm going to go ahead and say you put this one on the shelf, I think. It's weird. There's not a whole lot else like it. It's not really streaming anywhere. I think it might be on HBO Max. I rented it. Uh, what? This. Uh Gremlins 2. Oh, yeah, it was on HBO Max. It was on HBO yeah. Max, yeah. I rented it because I wanted to watch it in my living room. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to rant about Roku and HBO right now. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, $2. Yeah, I'd pay 2 bucks to watch this movie again. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's it's not an essential film. Arthur's right there. So it is a pretty light shelving. It just There's not a lot like it. And, uh, you know me, that, that gets a, mo- a movie a lot of mileage in my book. Very good, very good. I'm also going to say trash, and that only because I think it is a great postmodern example. But there are other postmodern examples, sure, yeah. and there—I mean, I wouldn't say better, but there are other ones out there. There's some that are more known, some that may be more significant uh, in the ways in which they do it. Uh, it's definitely something in an educational sort of sense you mm. want to do that. Mm. If postmodernism is your jam, this movie is a definite shelf. Uh, in that sense, postmodernism is not my particular jam. It's not my particular interest, and not my favorite kind of filmmaking necessarily. Which is again why I've been such a malaise for the last thirty years. Uh, I'm, I'm oh, hoping, that's why. Yeah, that's why. It's just, <laughs> I, yeah, it's among the reasons. Get off my lawn. Uh, but uh, you know, it just is what it is. And it's something you haven't got to talk about on the show for a while, but it's been a bugbear of yours for basically yeah. the entire time we've been doing the show. I'm just bored with it. And well, yeah, that, I think the late '90s and the early 2000s did kind of kill it a little bit. Yeah, and but they it just never. Died. Yeah, it it keeps just surging. Yeah, and and that's the thing that just continues to bore me with it. So I'm going to say, for personal reasons, trash. But if it is kind of your thing, uh, and that particular moment, and this continuing moment that we are in cinema history, 
then yeah, it's probably a shelfer for you, but just not for me. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on this film. Uh, Dalton, say some social media things. I'll be brief. Uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, that's uh, where you can find tweeted, retweeted and tweeted links to all of the shows that happen on the Good Trash Media Network. Uh, this show, uh, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, and Twilight, which, you know, you don't even have to subscribe to an, a separate podcast feed for that one. You just subscribe to the Good Trash Genre Cast feed, and Twilight will show up right there for you. I did forget to plug them. Uh, on the, I was on the Praise Down recently, and I forgot to pl- plug Twilight. I feel very bad about that. So this is me, my mea culpa. Um, I'm Penance. Uh, at good underscore trash that's how you find us on twitter find all those links i mentioned uh you can follow the other shows uh, that have their own twitter accounts at the praise down at wheel randy uh if you go to at the praise down on twitter uh, you can find their pinned tweet is a link to their discord server lots of fun stuff happening over there if you want to watch me watch borat too and get mad at it that's the place for you to go uh fun times are had by all uh, you can also uh, rate, review, and subscribe to this show or any other show that uh, us or our friends make that helps, apparently. That's what I, I keep hearing, anyway. Uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on and listen to the three of us play Monster of the Week in an actual play uh, yeah. tabletop podcast, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, help us pay our web hosting fees, uh, and listen to us roll some damn dice, a little nerd poker, if that's what you're into. Uh, what else? Uh, long-form feedback. If you think... Gremlins 2 is a masterpiece and we've underrated it uh, or if you think it's absolute dreck and you can't believe we spent an hour and a half talking about it you can go to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long form feedback I think that's it right I did all the plugs you did all the plugs okay Arthur so what's next explain all the rules and remind me of what I'm obligated to do and tell the listener what's happening yeah so we are exiting Dalton's house of horrors October 9 has come to a conclusion we will be burning it and salting the earth there was an asbestos infestation sorry about my house of horrors being a a house of uh, it's going to implode on itself into another dimension Ooh, I like that and as we celebrated Dalton in October we will be celebrating the godfather of good trash pops all through November so he's going to get to program most of the month but to kick things off Mm-hmm. And the reason why is I'm turning 40. I turned the big 3-0, you turned the big 4-0. It's all over now. Yep. Yeah. So I uh, I, I think we're going to kick things off with a movie you, I think, hold in pretty high regard. Uh, it's one you've talked about quite a bit as an Elser instead, and one that has just come up from time to time. I think it'll be a great jumping off point, and that is uh, uh, the great, I can't think of it, uh, Joel Schumacher. Schumacher's yep. The Number 23. Ah, oh, yes. With I, Jim Carrey. Wow, this is like what the fifth or sixth Schumacher movie we've done. Is that too high? Uh, we've done Forever. We did Lost Boys. You guys did Flatliners. Flatliners. I feel like I'm missing one at least. Maybe there's just those three. Maybe just the three. Yeah. But a, a filmmaker that we've covered quite a bit on this. this yeah, podcast. I mean he comes up pretty regularly. Yeah, Dante. Well, he's too. a good trash filmmaker. Truly. Oh, yeah. 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 And number twenty three is definitely a good trash film. And yeah. then from there, Dustin takes the reins. And he'll be picking first, in any order, I'll let him decide that order, but he does have to choose uh, a a good trash movie, one that is the kind of, mm. you know, thesis of this show. A, a Gremlins 2, yeah. a number 23, you something know, Arnold that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you yeah. know, Stallone, something of that nature. Got it. So he has to pick a good trash film. Then he has to pick a kung fu film. Sure, got because it. Because of his doctoral work and what he's been studying there. And finally... He also can choose one of his 
art house avant-garde weirdo gonzo movies that he likes to subject us to and dalton usually walks away loving and i usually walk away either on the fence or loving Look, I'm a pretty easy lay when it comes to liking your movie. So when I don't like Borat 2, no. <laughs> know that that's a pretty bleak damnation. Uh, yeah, Dustin shows me weird indie art house stuff. And yeah, you show me some pretty colors and no plot. I'm on board. So we'll see what happens there. Now, I will say, Dustin, your, your good trash uh, pick. You know, he, Arthur m- mentioned your Stallones and your, your Willises. You can pick something like Now and Later. That's a good trash movie. I'm just going to say... Or Now and Then, rather. I'm going to tease it out. The the good trash pick is a direct-to-video release. Okay. Very fun, very fun. So that's what we got in store for you all through November. That's a celebration of Pops. Uh, and that's all I got for you. All righty, dear listeners. So that's what's happening, what's coming on down the pipe. We thank you, Dalton, very much for programming our last marathon. And we ask you, dear listener, just to keep watching so that we can keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.